Welcome to another episode of the Constant Wonder Podcast. I'm Marcus Smith. Our very title, Constant Wonder, suggests that experiences of awe need not be isolated or rare. Constant wonder, accessible anytime, right at our fingertips. Our next guest claims almost exactly that. He's written, Awe is almost always nearby. The hitch, of course, is in his word, almost. There came an interval in his life when this world-renowned expert on awe, a scholar whose reputation in large measure hinges on the study of this transformative emotion, couldn't find it himself. I felt aweless, he says. UC Berkeley psychologist Dacker Keltner had just lost his close brother to cancer. He did feel awe in the presence of his dying brother, Rolf. Then, in the grief that followed, he lost access to that awe. Those days were filled with bodily aches, hallucinations, jolting from sleep while gasping for air. I dreamed dreams unlike anything I'd experienced before, he writes. Dacker Keltner is hardly exceptional in his experience of bereavement. Survivors suffer when loved ones die. But most striking in his personal account is this. Bereft of his brother, he knew he was also left without awe. And of these two, would either ever be something he could feel again? Dacker landed in graduate school at Stanford in the late 1980s, right when the field of psychology was in the thrall of something you could call the emotion revolution. I consider him to have been extremely lucky to have been guided toward awe research. He stuck in his thumb and he pulled out a plum. Previous psychologists had dedicated years to painstaking research on anger, shame, disgust, narcissism, violence, but also surprise and joy, still never specifically the emotion called awe. Awe can be a fugitive emotion, hard to study and define. It can be inspiring or terrifying. Here's how Dacker Keltner and his colleague Jonathan Haidt defined it back in 2003. Awe is the feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your current understanding of the world. In our conversation with him today, we'll get some sense for that transcendence and his personal transformation. In his deep grief over the loss of his brother, a loud voice called out, or he heard, or says he heard, the words, Find Awe. His private first-person walk toward that wonder lies at the heart of his latest book, Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. My mom got a PhD at UCLA and, and taught literature, and she was really interested in the great writers of feeling, the romanticists and D.H. Lawrence and Blake and Wordsworth and, and also consciousness and loved Virginia Woolf and her explorations of the mind. And my dad was a painter and loved painting horrific things, sort of social justice type things, protests against the war uh, in the spirit of Goya. And I think this was early, when you think about mid-60s, late-60s then, they were saying that really we find our, our purpose in life and feeling, in feelings of horror or feelings of love or bliss. 
And I remember my mom posing this rhetorical question when I was a kid where she would say, it's so ridiculous. We urge people to be happy and to smile, but imagine a world where we didn't cry and we didn't feel sad. And that always stuck with me. We lived in a, a house full of feeling. <laughs> Her advice to me as a young kid was always about the most important thing you can do is express your feelings because they have, contrary to a lot of Western European thought, they have a lot of wisdom in them. Say how you feel. If it's anger or sadness, just express your feeling. It's one thing for a mother to have a philosophy and to talk about it, yeah. but I, I'm thinking about taking those little boys by the hand and going out into the world yeah. and letting you feel the bark of a tree, that kind of thing. Yeah. Tell us some of that. You know, it's so interesting at this stage of my life and when you're in the middle of life for the last third, you think a lot about your childhood and your parents. And I think the best way to characterize it was feeling like we've been talking about Marcus and then... Like, go explore and be open to the world. And we would take these wild camping trips every summer because my mom wouldn't be teaching university. And we went into the Rockies, no plan, no sense of where we were going to stay. You know, we'd end up in some campground. My brother and I'd wander around and you know, just be immersed in nature and touch the trees and rocks. And they just let us go. And they took us to everything. We went to art museums and looked at really radical art. We went to festivals and social protests. Even as a young person, go into the world and experience. And to what extent was this just sort of reveling in life? And to what extent did your mom or your dad kind of uh, say there's more to it than just having fun? It definitely was not about having fun. <laughs> I wouldn't say fun was the defining quality of our family. My brother and I had enormous fun, almost like Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, like wandering around a lot. This was the late 60s, you know, and it was Laurel Canyon. And it was this moment in U.S. history of like there was a lot of political discussion, a lot of conversation around civil rights in Vietnam at our dinner table. And it was about exploration it was about yearning, and it was about finding your soul. It was remarkable, Marcus, for me to think about it compared to how I parented my daughters, which was much more controlled and constrained, which I regret in some sense. Um, so they, they allowed us to wander. When I was in high school, I had been out into the back country of San Diego uh, to the top of a mountain called Cuyamaca Mountain. Had pine trees, had granite rocks, had depressions in the rocks where the indigenous tribes had ground out the acorns and uh, left, left those holes behind. And it was a, a trip out there when I was really young that told me, wow, because I'd never experienced that before. Then I found myself suddenly realizing that I could actually see that mountain peak every day from a hill on this little street that took me over to the top of the hill to the high school. And every single day, you, you mentioned the word yearning, I would look out for that Cuyamaca Mountain just to see it. It was kind of this magnetic, yeah. well, it was impossible for me not to turn my eyes away. I had to look for it. Mm. Where were those places or experiences for you yeah. where your heart was kind of gravitating toward? 
I can think about two in particular, these places of exploration for us as a little family, my brother and I, like six, seven, eight years old. This camping trip up into the Rockies in our VW bus was wild. Dirt roads, didn't know if the car would make it. I remember driving through a little town and we went into this store and I was eating baby Ruth bars at the time and just obsessed with them. You know, and it was this really out, just out in the hinterland rural store and we walk in with these long haired kids and just, I realized like, wow, we are different. But I remember specifically we stayed at this lake in the Rockies, very remote lake. And my dad went off fishing out in a boat. My mom was at the campsite and my brother Rolf and I wandered around the lake and we just walked through campgrounds and we came across this guy and it was almost felt like William Faulkner or something where, you know, he was drunk out of his mind and he said, yeah, I got to show you guys this fish. And we had been fishing all the time and the magic of trying to capture these mountain trout and he holds up this trout and it's gigantic. <laughs> and my brother and I were just astounded, like it was six pounds or five pounds or whatever, and it just was in the light gleaming. And that was this feeling about the magical power of lakes and the mountains and wandering and bumping into the unusual types that camped there for a long time. Another place that was really important to me was the La Brea Tar Pits. They're in Los Angeles. I was transfixed by the La Brea Tar Pits, and they had saber-toothed tiger and the tar and... I think there was a model of a woolly mammoth and being stuck in the tar and it was death and violence and just horror and this other world that opened up my imagination to the idea that long ago there were other species and there were other living conditions and it blew my mind. People will toss around that term childlike wonder. I, I had that, yeah. but it's not all, it's not all a bed of roses. You not know, at because all. Because I remember one late night staying up and just considering the vastness of the universe and what was beyond this star and the next star and the next galaxy and being horrified by it. Yeah. Is there a scene you can paint for us where terror kind of struck the young child? What a terrific question, Marcus. It's so interesting to me that in many ways, as a child, I was most curious and astonished and wonderstruck by horror and terror. You know, I remember I hated death as a child. And when I would see dogs get hit by cars and birds fall out of trees, I would become obsessed about it and try to save little birds like a lot of kids do. And the idea of harm really upset me. Uh, watching TV shows, a, a tiger killing an animal, it just, it really jarred me. And I think what was astonishing about the Librea Tar Pits was the violence and death. And it just like pulsated with horror. Just like you could imagine very quickly suffocating and succumbing and tearing of flesh. I remember another time, Marcus, I was in Laurel Canyon and we were about to go to school and this woman, it was raining prolifically and my brother and I were about to go to school and walk down to these steps to a school bus across the street. And this woman was in a psychotic break and she was right outside our house at the rain gutter on this curvy, hilly street. 
drinking the rainwater out of the gutter and like, look at the water. And she was half dressed and really lost. And my brother and I just stood and looked at her condition. And my dad and mom didn't shield us from it. They were like, guys, people really suffer. You know, we, we moved after Laurel Canyon to this very rural town of three, 400 people, very poor at the time, very poor. My dad and mom had picked my brother and I up from school. And this girl, who I will not name, needed a ride home. She was in my class. She was universally mocked and bullied and harassed because she was really poor and it stayed back a few years. And there were all these stories that her house looked like a junkyard. It looked sort of Appalachian, just deteriorating. And the family was really struggling. She had trouble getting out of high school. And we took her home. And as she was telling us about just in a very sweet way about the, you know, just the hardship of her family. When we dropped her off, we all cried and you know, and I remember seeing my parents the next day, like buy a big box of clothes for them, for her, for that family and give it to them anonymously. One of the things I'm grateful for is my parents did not shield us from all the human hardship and terror and horror and that that is part of the human spectrum. My dad painted <laughs> like Goya and Francis Bacon early in his career. And a lot of the paintings were horrifying, you know. So horrifying. I took, Do you remember one of them? Can you describe one of them to us? There were humans turning into horses, uh, real fleshy bodies, you know, with part human, part animal, disturbing. Later in his career, he painted one, which was this naked guy, and the background was black, and this naked guy was like ghostly white. He had no hair. He was sitting on a chair naked, and he had this kind of greenish-white skin. And, and he looked like he was lost in total alienation and terror in his face. Eyes looking off and contemplating the end of life or whatever. So I took it to my college and I put it in my living room in this apartment. And everybody in the, the courtyard could see it. And one day the manager knocked on my door and said, I'm really sorry to ask this. I've never had to ask this, but... A lot of people are requesting that you take that painting down. <laughs> I was like, okay, sorry. You know. So yeah, it was not only a life of feeling, but it was a life of really grappling with human hardship and horror and terror. So uh, astonishing things uh, in the whole catalog. People talk about stars a lot, yeah, you know, yeah. night sky. Yeah. You've had that. You've been up in the mountains. You've been with a sleeping bag looking straight up at the sky. That can cut two different directions for people. I'm wondering what happened to you. Do you remember any particular instance of, of having that? Because it, it can go into shouts of hallelujah and glory and dancing, and uh, or it can be also more like the you know mammoth in the La Brea tar pits. Yeah. One, on one of our first camping trips, we used to drive out of Los Angeles and you'd drive through, I think, Nevada and get to Utah and Colorado. And we just stopped and there was a kind of a desertous campsite. And, and it was a desert sky <laughs> illuminating the rocky ground and the, the hills that were nearby. And we decided, my dad, you know, who loved this, he's like, let's just sleep outside. I was like, wow, you know, we're going to sleep outside. And we were in these sleeping bags. I was probably seven. 
uh, it was the, really the first conscious appreciation of a really big night sky of, of stars. And I felt, Marcus, to your question, I know some people freak out about space, but I felt like they were so warm. And they're, they're twinkling and the color of their light. They just felt um, like soft raindrops. And they were up there. Felt like I was being looked at a little. Um, I felt like they had a kind regard for me as I was lying in my bag. And it was mind-blowing how close they felt, how bright they were, how all-encompassing, and the light they produced. You know, I felt like, wow, there's actually this nighttime light that I feel around me. So warmth. Yeah, it felt warm. Like a warm, like a warm cashmere blanket. <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, I feel lucky that it is warmth. You know, it did feel, thank you for finding the word, it felt just basically warm. Awe-inducing experiences receive careful treatment by Dagner Keltner in his book. He classifies them by category. My metaphor of a warm cashmere blanket, I actually stole that image from his section about music. And these categories of awe-inducing experiences, they are many, from music, art and architecture, to wilderness and nature, dance and sport receive their due. Most of these categories seem happy and harmless, but I'm glad for his inclusion of terrible awe. Mammoths trapped in tar, shocking or hideous paintings, the displacement or fear sometimes felt by child or grown-up alike, when contemplating the night sky? And how about unsparing awe that comes conjoint with suffering? Such experiences also instill awe, and that awe is real. The transcendent doesn't always leave us unscathed. So at the start of this episode, I introduced the name Rolf, Dacker's brother, wanting to signal for you that Rolf's loss would figure prominently in our conversation, and it's time to explore the deep significance of that relationship between brothers here on Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. You've mentioned now your interest in backpacking. That was a thing with you and your family, your brother Rolf, with your daughter, your, yeah. your own family. You've mentioned that now. Uh, I want to talk about any instance where you have had kind of a surprising, what do people call these? They call them coincidences or synchronicities sometime. Let's jump way into the future. In fact, this is not that long ago. Mont, Mont Blanc yeah. in uh in France, yeah, and you're you're on a trip there. Tell me the story about where at some point somebody kind of says what you're thinking, like you're thinking about your brother. Is that did I get that right? Kind of, yeah. My younger brother Rolf Keltner passed away of colon cancer at I think 57. When he passed away, I was totally disoriented, and often Marcus, I wonder like how much have I really recovered from that? You know, I saw so much of the world through his life. And uh, so I uh, taught my class, and then I was just in a state of disorientation. I wanted to return to the mountains. He and I did a lot of backpacking, and, and my daughter and I did, and to this day. And I had a 
conference in Europe, and so I decided to go circumnavigate Mont Blanc, which is 100 miles around Mont Blanc, which is one of the first Western European ascents that really got people into the mountains again. And um, it was a hard trip because I was flying there by myself and feeling this grief that was only four months old and not knowing where my life was taking me and missing him in every way. And I remember landing in Geneva, getting on the bus, going to Chamonix where we were going to gather with the group, driving up that windy road. And I saw these trees blowing in the wind and I just heard his voice in the wind. I was just like, ah, he's there. And I was feeling him in nature a lot. Uh, in my I have to, I have to, this is a poignant thing you're telling me, but I have to break in here. You heard your brother's voice in the wind. Are you just being poetic there? No, no, I literally, and this was really interesting for me, Marcus, that I felt his hand on my back a couple times. I saw him in places. I heard his voice a lot in the wind. And I saw his hair color, which was red, at dusk a lot in the redwood trees and the grasses of Northern California. And it would take the shape of like this particular time. I like heard this wind and saw it and felt it. And I just heard him sort of say like, it's okay. Yes, it's okay. And it felt like a mixture of his voice and the wind. And I'm a biological scientist and good luck making sense of that. And it was a common experience. And so getting up into the place where we were staying in Chamonix, we arrive, we gather at a certain time, 7 p.m., and I'm getting ready for this 10-day trip around Mont Blanc. And this woman walks right up to me, and there are only 10 people in the group. And she says, are you Rolf Keltner's brother? My brother taught speech therapy in a little town in the Sierras. There are of a couple thousand. This woman comes right up and asks that. And I said, yeah, I am. And how do you know him? And she said, well, I am his colleague at this little school where we teach. And he and I are very close. And then she told me the story of how she planted that little school with gardens and plants and vines and the like. And when Rolf died, one of the vines that she planted blossomed for the first time. It was just more of this opening for me to the idea that spirit is everywhere and it's in nature and it's, and it's in how I hear my brother's voice in the wind and it's in this woman being here and telling me this story about honoring Rolf. And the 10 days that unfolded, she was with her partner. We told a lot of stories about Rolf and kind of astounded me. The odds of that are pretty low. I asked you if you're seeing or hearing the breezes, if that was poetic. Yeah. And you said, no, you've, you know, you felt his hand on your back. Yeah. You're a scientist. Yeah. And so it's very easy to say, well, if I saw my brother, if I saw his red hair, the photons go and hit the retina, right? You know, they come through the, the lens of the cornea. And so you can explain it that way. So I'm wondering with what organ of your being mm. did you see your brother mm. or feel his hand on your back? You know, Marcus, in working through my grief, this was the big transformation. The 
night that Rolf passed, I looked at his body and I just felt other dimensions of physical reality pulling him into something. And I felt a different kind of presence than I'd ever perceived before. And throughout the years of grief, um, feeling his hand on my back and hearing his voice in uh, the winds and seeing his uh, eyes in the trees that I walked by to teach at Berkeley, um, and then feeling him in the sky. Um, and most recently, in, in, I was in Bhutan for this documentary, and, and this woman sang this song of grief uh, as part of a ritual up way up high in the Himalayas. And I felt my brother in the song and in, in the spaces between the mountains. And it, the sensory organ that, I can't even describe it, but, you know, I read into quantum physics and, you know, all the implications it has for experience and consciousness and identity. And that's kind of how I would think about it now. Hey, your senses see one thing, but there's all this other experience that my brother's death opened me up to that I, I can't make sense of scientifically at all, but is very real to me. And it was a profound transformation over the course of several years for me. Dacker Keltner, our guest, is a professor of psychology at Berkeley and author of Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. One of the hallmarks of these kinds of transformative experiences of awe, and this is an observation that goes back over a hundred years to the so-called father of American psychology, William James, is that these experiences elude expression. We can't do any justice to them when we attempt to describe them. They must be directly experienced to be understood. So when I hear Dacker say, I can't make sense of it scientifically at all, but it's very real to me, I think I get it. He's far from alone in having had something real happen that he felt and he knows he felt it. Apart from our human habit of processing a lot of stuff with what we call the intellect. Now, I don't often get very personal when getting to know a guest on this podcast, but as I spent time with Dacker on this specific point, it just seemed the right thing to do. You know, his own very vulnerable story about his brother's death, he writes about it in his book. Well, it called to mind a difficult loss of my own, and in the moment I decided to share. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Having become acquainted with your work, the science of awe, the exploration of awe, the, the literature of awe, your story of Rolf that you're so yeah. uh, open to, to sharing with us now and in your book, you've become kind of a foil for my own experience of the loss of my own brother. Mm. As I was reading about your feeling again or carrying his embrace with you today, it took me back to the last embrace I had with my brother. Mm. His circumstances were horrific, a very tragic uh, story of bipolarity and, mm. and suicide. And, oh, it was three months or so uh, before he took his life. There was a moment of hope where I had done something for him and he was hopeful again for a short spell. And we were outside under the open summer sun and he gave me a big, tight embrace. Mm. 
I thought about this moment in my history as I read on page 93 of your book. And if you'll bear with me, I'm going to quote you to you. You say, I will never feel that embrace again or be inspired by new acts of his moral beauty. But my body tells me, in this sense of being touched, that he is still somehow nearby, that our life together is registered in some permanent electrochemical awareness in the millions of cells in my skin that make sense of being embraced by my brother, that there is something beyond the corporal body of others' lives that remains in the cells of our bodies when they leave, and that there is so much moral beauty and so much good work to do. I read that, and I stopped for a long while just to contemplate my own experience. Mm. And, you know, with those that we love, that we lose, and they seem gone... I'm not one who has often felt his presence, frankly, but now I'm wondering if I should try, you know, or, or wait or expect it. Yeah. If I should harbor some expectation. Your invitation is as broad as asking us all to pursue the experience of awe in our daily lives. This could be in small things or big things. It could be a mystical experience. It could just be something aesthetic, maybe. I'm wondering if you really are committed to the reality of these feelings that our intellectual life will sometimes discount in skeptical ways. Yeah, and, you know, I'm really sorry about your brother. Um, and all deaths have horror in them and are hard. In the writing of this book, I came to the sense with the science and then experience and stories that awe is this fundamental state of mind. And that's Descartes and Einstein and... Rachel Carson, it's a way that we relate to the world, just like compassion is or anger. Awe, in particular, destabilizes our current knowledge structures and opens us up to the imagination and what is not necessarily real or what we would call real. Awe is also deeply embodied, you know, in tears and chills and a sense that, like, you're, you don't have skin. You're just part of this group you're listening to music to or protesting with or backpacking with or in church with. All of those are very real processes in the body that I felt throughout and that have been documented scientifically. And then it, for me, Marcus, and thank you for focusing on this, it opened my mind to other dimensions of experience that I can't measure with our Newtonian methods, you know, of that maybe my brother is around somehow. Maybe there is him in my last embrace with him, which I, you know, I can feel right now in my shoulder, um, back, uh, tearing up, that it's still with me, you know, that there's something that that is indescribable about the cells that keeps other people with us. So I'm very open to all of that and the implications it has for how I think about the world. And it was liberating, frankly, Marcus. I was such a biological reductionist before all of this. And it opened my mind wildly to how do other people's lives stay with us? And maybe they are with us. And what's that mean? If I just heard you correctly, then this new experience of awe and grief at the loss of your brother, there's a... Uh, 
a recalibration? I mean, you've had this career of two decades. You, you said a biological reductionist. Have you rounded a bend in thinking about this differently then? I have. And, you know, it was, I guess the best word to describe it is just I'm open. And it's not just the pluralistic openness of like, I respect everybody's different spiritual orientation. Rather, it's that as I relate to reality and I think about extraordinary experiences that can't be made sense of from the framework I work in, I'm open to them, curious about them. And I speculate about them and try to think about them. This really came into focus in writing about awe. I don't know a lot about spirituality, and I interviewed a lot of people, ministers and indigenous contemplative scientists and the like. And I went to a retreat in India. It was ecumenical about all the different religious traditions. We meditated. We were by Gandhi's ashram, and that was astonishing to sit in Gandhi's room, whom I admire so, you know, who had influenced civil rights and the Berkeley free speech protests and who I'd read a lot about. And Can you qualify that astonishment? What was the nature of that astonishment? I mean, does it, was it, wow, this is a historically important place, or wow, he might still be here? When we visited Gandhi's workspace down by this river that he, we sat and meditated where he meditated, and I felt the sand, and I felt like I could feel his feet. And then we went to his room that he worked in, and it was this tiny little room. And, you know, it had a little desk, and he spun wool in it, and just sitting there with his principles of nonviolence written up on the wall of compassion and truth and nonviolence and the like. I just felt his body in that room on the floor, this cement floor. Um, and not in the same way of Rolf. It was more, he's a historical figure, right? But it was powerful. But at this retreat, the last day we did this meditation, walking meditation, walked around this square with pools that captured rainwater and there's lush trees and it was so quiet and at the end of the meditation just touching our heads to the ground and making eye contact with these people who worked in the Gandhi ashram taking care of orphans and the like and seeing their eyes and sitting there it was another experience like this Marcus of feeling distinctly like my sense of the sky had my brother in it and he again was up there and I could hear this voice saying it's okay and I don't treat that now as a hallucination or an auditory misfire I treat it as something real you know, everything you've just been talking about pulls me into something I think that is really crucial in our experiences of wonder yeah. or awe, as it's called, <laughs> the title of your book. And this has to do with the idea that experiencing something wondrous isn't necessarily 
the goal in itself if you're going to be goal-driven. But what is it for? What does it do to us? And I, I know there's been so much written by you and by others about the idea that you're more compassionate and more empathetic people that you put out in these experiments. And they're on the Berkeley campus, and they're looking. half of them are looking up at the gum eucalyptus tree on one side, and the other get to look at a, a human-built environment, a building, and, and they behave differently afterwards. Some of them are kinder or, mm-hmm. or more compassionate or, or more generous. I'm wondering, have you noticed in yourself that the experiences that, like the ones you've described, be they in nature or at a concert or or listening with your family to LPs, where the wonder did something to you? I've been lucky to have all kinds of awe experiences. Nature, seeing Nelson Mandela, being around the Dalai Lama. And they always do something for me, and they align with the science that we've shown, which is like a little burst of awe, looking up at some trees or at a big view makes you kinder, you share more, uh, you put aside differences and see the common humanity with others, you feel more collective. But the bigger thing that my experiences of awe have done, and I have an example, is it just makes me understand why I'm here on earth and what work I'm supposed to do. One of my transcendent experiences of awe, in fact, it's a regular source of awe for me, is to go work in prisons. And, and I've done different kinds of prison work. And I, I was in San Quentin prison first time, and it's part of the restorative justice program. And there were 180 guys in this chapel. And I was there all day as part of restorative justice, and I was the speaker. And I gave a talk on awe. And compassion. And it's a very moving day for a lot of people to be inside and to hear the life stories of these prisoners and all the trauma they faced and the violence they've done and how they are seeking redemption. You're tearing up all the time. You're getting goosebumps. You're feeling wide open. And when I asked them about their experience of awe, they gave, I think, the most remarkable responses I've ever heard of being awestruck by a visit from their grandchild or uh, their celly, their roommate's laugh, the chance to get a high school diploma, learning how to read, the light, the breeze, playing basketball. It was just so pure. And I still remember that moment standing there and hearing these responses. And I, you know, what that did for me, Marcus, and I think what awe does for a lot of people if we listen to it, and as you say, follow where it leads you. Is it said Dacker? Like, you do a lot of different kinds of work, but man, this prison work is really fundamental to you. And I don't know why, and I'm not legally trained. I'm probably the wrong person to do it. But this matters to you, Dacker, given your life history and your culture and your family. And it, it has persisted. And a lot of people I talk to have these awe experiences where they're you know, I, I just, I tended to people who were unhoused and I, that's what I want to do in my life is, is that kind of work. Or I love the beauty of Paris and I, they go into design. So I think listening to awe is one of the, the great adventures of life. You broke the rules at San Quentin. Yes, I did. Tell us a little about that. Mm, makes me tear up thinking about it. Yeah. In this work inside, you spend eight hours there. Um, you have lunch with the prisoners, and they get 
fed crappy food and you hear their stories and you do the restorative justice work of talking to each other, talking about harm, et cetera. And at the end of the day, you, we all stand up. You know, and it's so remarkable, Marcus, to be in unison with other people physically, listening to music or playing sports or cheering or dancing. And this was that. It was like we all stood up and kind of got into a comfortable posture and we said these phrases of restorative justice, you know, that violence is not a solution to anything, everybody has dignity, and so on. And at the end... Oh, uh, help me out here. Uh, what, what you're saying is people recite this in unison together? Yeah, at the very end of a day of restorative justice in San Quentin, you stand up, there are 180 men in blue, all wearing the blue denim of being a prisoner, and then probably six to eight volunteers. You stand up, and up on the, the screen, they put the eight phrases or so of restorative justice, their core principles of treat everybody with compassion, violence is not a solution to anything, every human has dignity and worth. And you say these phrases with everybody at the same time. It's, a for, it's like chanting or a form of prayer. And I hadn't had a lot of experience of that. And I'm with all these people, I'm standing at the back of this chapel, we're all uttering these phrases, and I'm starting to feel, wow, this is powerful. I'm feeling a rush of goosebumps and some tears and a sense of, like, I'm just part of this. I'm not Dacker. I'm just part of this. these words. And it ends, and I have goosebumps, and I turn to Lewis Scott, who's a friend, who's now in Folsom Prison, he helped run the restorative justice programs. He has a podcast in prison. He creates newspapers in prison wherever he goes. Remarkable human being. And I'd been getting close to him, and we turned to each other, and we hugged. And you're not supposed to hug. You're not supposed to touch the prisoners. Correctional officers were often circulating, and they'll cancel the whole day if you do that. But he and I had to hug, and we said, I love you. And we're crying and laughing, and uh, and it made, you know, made me think about hugging my brother. Lewis was very big and strong like my brother, had a big chest and big arms, hugged in the same way like men do, one person's chest into another person's shoulder, and it, it, it gave me hope. You said something just a moment ago that is really insightful. You said, I, I wasn't Dacker, I was part of all of this, or, or words to that effect. Yeah. I've had experiences, mm. I would say that they're kind of rare. I've had some powerful experiences where, and I think in the literature, I think this goes back to, you know, this, there's a long history of people trying to describe what this is all about. Ego death is one term. You talk about the quieting of the default mode network. All of that gets kind of science-y, and I can hang with that for a while. But I'll just tell you, from my personal experience, I've had a couple of ego deaths, mm. where I would say that it was an experience with the divine. Mm. And um, I can corroborate, I mean, I can stand as witness that the self just kind of evaporates and suddenly I'm connected. I just want one more story from you. You've given us some powerful stories already. Maybe you got one more about when you knew, and maybe even were surprised by the quieting of your own DMN, your default mode network? Um, two, three years ago, we went into this place called Evolution Valley, which is 
uh, certain backpacker's favorite place in the Sierras, and it's just an extraordinary trip. And so you got to catch a boat across this little lake and then hike 15 miles in. It's it's tough, you know, good ascents and up to 10, 11,000 feet. And my daughter and I, we go backpacking, to be quite honest, Marcus, because we are pretty high-strung and burn, and we just have a lot of energy don't know what to call it. And then somehow there's something about backpacking that's liberating and freeing. And so we go into this trip and we make the meadows the first day and then we get to this one place the second or third day and it's just surrounded by granite faces and peaks and they're little really deep blue mountain lakes. And we get this campsite and I sit up on the rocks and my daughter goes off and is exploring and the moon rises and it's dusk and I just dissolved. I just felt, as a lot of people out in nature and backpacking do, that that there was no separation between me and the scene in nature. I was part of it and it felt freeing and ecstatic and makes me laugh and tear up and just feel warm, to use your word, just to feel with nature like that. I hate to use a, a statistic here, but 41% of Americans find the divine in nature, as Ralph Waldo Emerson and others did. And for me, that was as close as I've been to just the sense of the warm embrace of spirit. Decker, you've just been terrific here. Can I say something? I, I want you to say... Whatever is left unsaid that you need to say right now. First of all, Marcus, thank you. This is the most original interview I've ever had. (laughs) And, you know, I, I think that life is about stories of awe and where they point us and how, as you said, they unfold what they tell us and how we listen to them. And, and I just want to say thanks for allowing me to tell a few stories of awe and sharing your own. I'm sorry about your brother. And I hope going forward, we all tell more stories of all. We're speaking with Dacker Keltner, a psychology professor at UC Berkeley. He's author of Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. Tell more stories of awe. Find awe. Make constant wonder, if you possibly can, a real thing in your life, a daily thing. I'm so glad I had a chance to get to know Dacker and for his willingness to be so transparent and open and honest throughout our conversation. That's really, truly a rare kind of gift. If you want more from him, however, more than we've been able to bring you here today, I recommend a few approaches. One, obviously, is to get to know him through his latest book. It's titled, Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. Another is just do what I've done so many times in recent weeks. Check out his most recent interviews and presentations. They're often readily available online, on YouTube, for instance. Or enjoy his work in podcasts and other valuable resources from the Greater Good Science Center at Berkeley. The website for that is greatergood.berkeley.edu. Dacker, by the way, is spelled D-A-C-H-E-R, then Keltner, K-E-L-T-N-E-R. Today's episode was produced by Eric Schultzka and Mamie Teeples. I'm Marcus Smith. Our show, The Constant Wonder Podcast 
is a production of BYU Radio.